welcome to the Liberated Porch Podcast. I'm your host, Kit Morgan, licensed social worker and therapist. Join me as I sit down with guests to chat about finding liberation through social justice and mental health. Vicente is a people photographer, storyteller, land traveler, and has a passion for analog focus and appreciation for old ways. He's a photographer and artist and teacher based out of Buffalo. Thank you so much for joining today, Vicente. Yeah, no problem. No problem, Kit. (laughs) Yeah, so we met, I think it's been since 2019 now, because it was a little bit before the pandemic. And I was just like blown away by your photography. And then whenever I saw the way that you worked, I have never seen someone photograph the way that you photograph. Oh, thank you. That's, I actually take that as a compliment. I think it's a compliment at least. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I I like how that's done. Thank you. I don't think that a lot of people realize, but before I was a therapist and social worker, then I was a photographer. And so then just, there can be a lot of different styles that people photograph. But the way that you photograph and just approaching people on the street, to me, it just, it comes across as being really fearless. And I'm wondering, like, do you feel fearless in going up to people on the street or like, or what draws you to people on the street to be taking pictures of them? Let me tell you, I am completely fearless. What? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) uh, No, I, I, I like that question because that question is... It, it's it's kind of like within the same vein of questioning that I get from my students. And it has a lot to do with, obviously, like they feel a certain amount of anxiety about going up to people and making photographs of them. They express that they are anxious, that they don't like this idea or they don't like, they don't like the potential for the process. And I have to, I have to like explain to them that even in the way that I approach people, even though it may seem like it's this very effortless sort of act, it's, it isn't. It's something that does get me a little nervous here and there, depending on the person. There are some times where I can, I can look at an individual and because we're human beings and because we notice facial expression and, and some of us are aware enough to understand body language. I look at some people and I wonder, Ooh, is this person really not feeling the idea of me approaching them even with this camera? Is this person angry today? Or is this person not having a great day? All of those things, you know, they sort of just sound off in my mind, but I still want to make an image of the specific person. So I have to kind of swallow that and decide this might be worth it. I have to make mm. a picture. I'm going to include a link to your work in the show notes here. And for our listeners, whenever you look and see Vicente's work, I mean, you photograph a diverse range of folks. And I'm wondering, are there like certain people where they seem more drawn to you? Like, let's say... If you're photographing in Buffalo and it's maybe an area or neighborhood that you feel familiar with in Buffalo, then does that seem to come more with ease of photographing people or photographing people in urban areas or like what, what do you notice about that? That's okay. So it's, it's funny that you mentioned that too, because today uh, was the first time that for this semester, not for my class, but for the, for this specific semester, this is the first day that we went on a little photo excursion where we went out and they were like, all my students were to work on their specific assignment. 
and their first assignment is to make photographs of strangers, uh, just like I do. I think that that's something that's very important, and uh, we can get into that a little bit later about why I think it's important. But um, the reason why I, I'm starting off with this is because uh, I gave them the option of voting between three places, three specific settings. And I believe one of them was University at Buffalo. One of them was Bidwell Park off of Elmwood. And the third was Hoyt Lake behind the AKG. And all the students pretty much picked Bidwell Park. I think it was an overwhelming majority that was like, let's go to Bidwell Park. When it comes to picking a place like Bidwell Park, for me, for example, Bidwell Park is an extremely safe place because that is an area that you can find a lot of people. And when I say safe, Mm. I don't want that to be misconstrued with this idea that it's safe because of the type of people that are at Bidwell Park or in Elmwood Village. I don't, I'm, I'm not thinking about that. It's more so it's a safe place in terms of it is an easy place to make your pictures around a lot of people because there are so many people to pick from and they come in abundance and they're all either at the park or at a coffee shop that's nearby. Like you're going to find people very easily. So for my students' first mm-hmm. excursion out, that was going to be easy. But you mentioned, you know, going around a specific neighborhood. I think about how it's much harder for me a lot of the time to make photographs within my own neighborhood. Uh, I, I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood. I am Puerto Rican. And it is important for me to, to make photographs of my people and people like me. It's much more difficult here, not because of the neighborhood that I live in necessarily. It's it's more so because I don't get to see a lot of my people uh, when I'm out and about making photographs. I, I mean, like as a freelancer, my schedule is very different from the normal person's schedule. People are at work a lot of the time, you know, when mm. I'm usually chasing a job. Whenever I have my free time and I like to make my photographs, that's at a very different time than most people are out. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. It's a lot harder to find people, even though I'm in a residential neighborhood that's vast. It's like, yeah, this is it's hard to find people outside, out and about. This is something that I'm working on for myself that I've been intending on working on even even more is learning fluent Spanish, like becoming fluent in Spanish rather than just Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, being survivable. Uh, mm-hmm. having some survivability with how much Spanish I know. I, I wasn't very receptive to Spanish when I was a kid and that's, that's on me. I was being a little bit of a brat. And now as an adult, I look at that as something that is not helpful whenever I try to approach people that are like me to make photographs, because a lot of the people in my neighborhood, especially the older people that I do have interest in making photographs of, they don't speak English in the same way that I do. And on top of that, they deserve to be spoken to in, in a manner of respect and within within a language that we can both, what's the word that I'm looking for, that we can both find some common ground on. And it would be great if if I could speak to them fluently in Spanish, that that's like the ultimate respect. You have said so many good things here that I have so many questions here. Okay, so first question I have for you is, when did you start taking an interest in Puerto Rican culture and in learning fluent Spanish? Okay, so there's two different answers for that. So taking an interest in Puerto Rican culture, to be perfectly honest and open, I wasn't all that receptive or open to my own culture when I was younger. And when I say younger, I mean when I was in my preteens to my teens. And the reason being was because of the school that I went to, not that it was necessarily a bad school, but, you know, it was it was mostly white families and white kids who, mm-hmm. who were very intelligent, you know, and we we did have people of color that went there, people of color like me. But at the same time, I, I didn't exactly fit in. Mm-hmm. I didn't really fit in. And I, I kind of found my way with a lot of with a lot of white kids. And that mm-hmm. that sort of 
that didn't really help me in trying yeah. to accept and understand my culture because a lot of jokes were being passed around and, and mm. a lot of comments that didn't really help me accept who I was and where I came from. And mm -hmm. it kind of sucks because my parents were activists. I mean, they were mm -hmm. huge activists and very well known in Western New York mm -hmm. um, and uh, New York City. My father's from New York City, but uh, very well known in Western New York back in the 60s and the 70s. And I was doing a disservice to them and I didn't even know it. So when mm -hmm. it came to Puerto Rican culture, I was much more receptive to Puerto Rican culture probably when I, I reached my early to mid 20s. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to your second question, which is, when did I decide that I was going to become more fluent in Spanish? I've been trying on and off to do that when I could over the last like six or seven years. I think uh, that I've been doing a better job within the last uh, year or two. Um, what helped with that in the past year or two? I I don't know. I think I think it has a lot to do with the idea that as I as I got into my 30s, like I'm I'm 32 going on 33 now. I'll be 33 in a couple of weeks or in two weeks actually. I I thank you. Okay. I I think that it at the at the risk of sounding like a jerk saying this. I mean I'm I'm just gonna go for it. I stop making excuses because there is a lot of bullshit and there's a lot of excuses that go into not doing the things that you want to do um, yeah. or that you think are important. And I understand that there's a lot about me that kind of that that can deter me from from taking up something that's new, especially when it comes to you know mental health and the things that we've talked about, things that I'm afflicted by. Mm -hmm. But really, I've been overcoming I've been co overcoming a lot of obstacles since I was a kid. So mm -hmm. why not just take on this other thing and just try it at, in the doses that I can? And when it came to becoming more fluent in Spanish, you know, within the last year or two, I find that I found that it was a lot easier, a lot easier to try to manage my time because I became better at managing my time and better at managing exactly how much information I could, I could absorb. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Definitely within, within this amount of time, but also in keeping with my nephew mm -hmm. was born last year. He's about 17 months old now and or 16 months. I don't know. Uh, he's something, you know, but he's, <laughs> uh, but my nephew was born last year and my brother and his wife, my brother, and my sister-in-law, the primary language that they speak to him in is Spanish. Mm. And I wanted to make sure that I could communicate with him. Yes. So I've been learning in every way that I can. Oh, I love that so much. And I mean, Something that I'm thinking about too is, and I've just been hearing about this a little bit more and more, is that in learning another language that it can benefit our mental health in different ways. And I'm wondering if you've noticed if learning Spanish more has benefited your mental health or your life in ways that maybe you didn't expect. I, you know, I, I don't think that it's enough right now for me to say that it was a, a huge change or that I've noticed this huge benefit. I know that there, there are benefits already because I'm, I can understand more like that's, mm -hmm. the benefit, you know, and I'm able to, even at like a, even at an elementary level, like I can, I can say, I can use phrases or speak Spanish to my nephew and, you know, he's, he's pointing at the light and, you know, we go loose and loose is, is light in Spanish. Or, you know, when my when my cousin FaceTimes with me and my brother, because we, we do like a, a daily FaceTime almost. So it's my cousin, Nina, and my brother, Albisu. When we're talking, if if Nina gets on the phone, because we're all jokesters, I, I say to my nephew, oh, Braulio, 
¿dónde está el, el payaso? You know, ¿dónde está el payaso? And, it, and it's, where's the clown? Where's the clown? Yeah. And, and that's Nina. And apparently he points to the phone. <laughs> and he points at my cousin. I was wondering who is the clown in your family. Yeah, she's, I call her the clown. And the thing is, is that, like, obviously I've coached him into thinking this about her. But, and it's kind of messed up. But she cracks up at it. And, uh, and like, he, he responds. I think he does at least. My brother says, oh, he's pointing. He's pointing. You know, so even with that poor Spanish that I just gave you, I just I think about how that's worth it. Like to make someone laugh is great. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. You know, I moved to the Adirondacks, which borders French Canada. And so there's a lot of signs that are written in both French and English out here. And so I was making a lot of excuses. Oh, like French, it's so hard. I'm not going to learn it. And then I was like, no, you know, I really want to try. So I've been actively working on learning it. And the more that I've been learning it, which I, (laughs) I can't speak it very much now, but I'm able to understand it better by listening at this point is that I'm learning a lot more about people and about relationships because of the way that it's just a very visual language. And it has helped me look at things from different perspectives. And I guess I want to go back to even the way that you teach your students and the different perspectives. I'm wondering, how old were you whenever you first picked up a camera? When I first picked up a camera, I don't know, but I I will say <laughs> the first time that I used one with intention was when I was 12 years old, 11 or 12. So tell me about the experience that you had. I, I have to start off with this. My my brothers are both very talented individuals and they both had their own, their own mediums or their own art forms. Mm-hmm. My oldest brother is a, he's a percussionist. Him being a percussionist, he... You know, he had practiced pretty much every single day in our house when we were growing up. He's 15 years older than I am, but I remember him practicing all the time when I was a kid and it was loud as hell, but he was always perfecting his craft. And, and that's something that he became very good at to the point of, you know, a fluency where Mm -hmm. he became a professional, a professional percussionist and professional Latin percussionist. So he plays congas for a lot of Latin jazz bands. And Mm -hmm. he, you know, he does a beautiful job doing this. He has a, he has an immense passion for it and he's played with some great performers and he's played with some local acts too. And this is something that he's always continued with. Like this is his thing, but he started that when he was young. My middle brother, Albisu, he is an illustrator and a designer, but an illustrator first. And he had his thing. He was always drawing when I was a kid, always. I mean, like, Anytime that he was that he was at any sort of gathering or anytime that he was at school, always had a notepad and a pencil with him and he was always drawing. And I was, you know, I'm 12 years younger than Albisu, 15 years younger than, than Geraldo, and I didn't have anything, you know, and I tried a couple of things. I tried music, you know, I tried the mm-hmm. drums and that didn't work out for me. And mm-hmm. I tried being good at, you know, painting and illustration and I, I didn't really have that big of an interest in it the way that my brother did. And... Then my oldest brother gave me a camera that he had used at his college when he was in the communications program. And I used that camera and I liked it. I liked the action of making a picture. And then Albisu, uh, my middle brother, bought me a camera from one of his professors. 
And I was enrolled in a summer program at the time. I was given this camera to use and I loved it. Like I loved making pictures. And from then on, I would make pictures whenever I could. Now, obviously it wasn't, it, it isn't at the frequency that I, that I make pictures now, but when I was 11 or 12, I, I made them whenever I could, whenever I had film. And this kept on going through my teenage years. And then I, I really got serious about it uh, after I started making money off of it, uh, shooting bands. And the funny thing is, is that I think even though I still make money off of this, it's, it's a very different way that I approach photography than I did when I was, you know, of course, a, a kid or a teenager. But yeah, I've, I've been doing this since I was 12 years old. And doing it whenever you were in, you know, middle school and high school as well. Like, was it a way that you found that you started connecting with people? Like, did it help you fit in? And because, I mean, a lot of times in being teenagers, like teenagers just want to belong. And yeah. we were talking about belonging earlier. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering about that. Yeah, that's that's a very good question because it it was exactly that when I was younger. I mean, in a way, it it allowed me to observe in the way that I wanted to, and mm -hmm. I I have to say I really do. I I have to go back to this real quick. I love the fact that that your podcast is called Deliberated Porch, as if you are talking on a porch in a very free way. You're just having a conversation with with a friend on a on a porch. That's how I took it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I. I have to be honest with, with myself and with you as, as my friend and stating to you that a part of it, part of the, the photo obsession or part of the passion for photography has to do with observation. It isn't mm -hmm. just connection, but it's also looking at people and viewing people and seeing people and being able to spot things that other people can't or people don't care for. That is a big reason as to why I got into photo the way that I did, but it was also to belong because I mm -hmm. also understood, and I, I still understand this now, but I, I don't let it bother me. And I do, I also don't let it, I don't let it kind of direct the way that I make my photographs now. But when I was a kid, I, I knew, I, I understood the inherent intrigue of being a, you know, like photographer. And I, and I say that mm -hmm. in sparkly Sparkly, like, you know, I, I knew what kind of intrigue that could bring. And I thought, yeah, this is a cool way to make something and, and to be an artist per se, but also to get people interested in me. And mm -hmm. that's why it was, that's why it was something that I really wanted to stick with when I was younger. Whereas now I really enjoy putting a spotlight on people that I, I honestly and fully believe are very beautiful in their own way. And I know that may sound cliche, but it's, it's almost as if I, I like the idea of shedding some light on individuals that most people would not double take for, or mm. some people would triple take for, you know, I don't like going for a medium. It's, mm -hmm. it's on one end of the spectrum or the other in terms of extreme, you know, it's like, yes, that, that is really, really noticeable or someone who is not very noticeable, but is doing something very beautiful or has something very beautiful about them that you should take a look at. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you say this because this is why I started um, using a camera with intention 13 years ago. You, you know, it was like, I used to have my mom's film camera whenever <laughs> I was really little and I would have friends over and we would play dress up and we would model, we would wear like dresses from like Goodwill and like suits from Goodwill and <laughs> just put on what basically looked like drag makeup, you know? 
It was awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, I would be so excited to use up the roll of film and then get it back from Target. You know, after my mom did her Target shopping, it was just one of the most exciting things. So I guess really that was the first time that I used a camera with intention. And then after, you know, it seemed like I had outgrown dress ups, then I stopped photographing for a few years. And then I got back into it because I was doing drawing and and painting and realized, wow, I'm doing a lot of this creating alone. (laughs) And I want to start connecting with other people. And I live with PTSD. And so because of PTSD, it has caused me to be a very observant person. And so I started realizing, you know, I can use that observation to the benefit of creativity and use that in a way of photographing so that people can feel seen. I like that. I think that's really wonderful. I mean, I, I, number one, I think that it's really awesome that your, your experience, like your first couple of experiences with making photographs was when you were younger and playing a character. Yes. I, I think that's <laughs> I, I think that like playing within art is very important. Like, Definitely. Important. And I also think that it's really awesome that you decided as you got older you wanted to make art having to do with other people because it was more of a connection. Like it was based in connection. And I think that that's also important too. I mean, I don't necessarily believe that every artist has to feel connected to people in order to make beautiful art, but I think that if it's important for you to make the work that you do, then yeah. You have to, you have to like throw yourself into this passion and see what comes out of it. You know, I, that's why I make photographs of people. (laughs) Oh, for sure. You know, with the pandemic, a lot of people have been talking about that maybe it wasn't so hard for them to go up and approach people and start up a conversation. But now a lot of people are finding it harder and harder to go up to people and, after the pandemic started and it waned and masks were coming off, did you still find the same ease of going up to people on the street and talking with them and photographing them? Or was there something different? For me, on my side of things, I I honestly didn't have a, a hard time with mm-hmm with approaching people, not with the pandemic. I had a very hard time with the pandemic, but I didn't have a hard time with reapproaching people about making a photograph. But I did notice that a, uh, a lot more people were weary. Mm. That's definitely something that I noticed. And I wondered, does this have, does this have to do with me at all? Like, is, is, there, is there some different energy that I'm putting out? Or is there a different way that I'm acting towards people when I'm asking uh, to make photographs? And I was like, no, I, I think that, I think that some people were just really affected. I mean, I think that we were all affected by the pandemic, but some people were really affected when it comes to being social and Mm -hmm. it it kind of hindered or hurt their ability to, to connect with a stranger. You know, why, why should you even trust a stranger a lot of the time? And when you, when you throw something in a, a health issue, then yeah, that's, that's a big reason to stay away from people. But I personally didn't find a problem with, with reconnecting with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, multi-layered of the exhaustion that people experience I mean whenever I lived in western New York that was around the time of George Floyd as well as Daniel Prude Mm -hmm. and you know and and that was exhausting too of 
the traumas that were brought up. Yeah. As, mm-hmm. as, a, as a person of color, that, that was something that was extremely exhausting, especially with trying to make sure that you're doing everything that you can to, to show support and solidarity. And, and when it, like, how, how can I put this? Comparing that to the feelings of the pandemic, I think that dealing with those things was much more difficult for me in terms of after effect. You know, the pandemic is still hard to deal mm-hmm. with, but at the same time, I, I truly don't believe that I lost too much of my social ability. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came to what you just referenced, that was a little bit harder on me when it came to making photographs. I, it was much harder for me to create during those times because I wasn't necessarily creating in the way that I normally would. Now my, my perspective and my sights were set on, on making images that were, that were completely based around storytelling, documentary storytelling for something very specific, like mm-hmm. protest or, or personal trauma, having to do with people who have experienced trauma at the hands of law enforcement or the government or because of racism. Like it's, I started thinking in terms of how do I make more photographs having to do with this? And there was, I, I don't remember exactly where the point was, but I do remember that there came a time, like eventually that I just started making photographs in the way that I was before. But now I was just making sure to concentrate more on individuals that were like me, no matter what, you know, no matter if I used the photograph or not, or if I displayed the photograph, it's like, no, this is, this is a record for myself too. The idea that I don't necessarily make art for other people. I do want other people to enjoy the images that I make, not even enjoy, but be captivated by the images that I make and have something to say about it. But I make the art mostly for me. It's, mm-hmm. it's because I want to make the photograph. I want to make those pictures. Mm-hmm. Whenever I've watched you work, I mean, something about me and the way that I observe is I really look at a person's body. I take in their body and what that looks like, what their voice sounds like. There's a type of therapy called gestalt therapy where it's looking at these parts of a person and even the different body muscles that are tensed and relaxed. And so it's a lot of how I see the world. And whenever I've seen you approach people to be taking pictures of them, while their bodies may be tense initially, I see them become relaxed whenever being seen by you and and being photographed by you. And I just, I see that as being a gift because there's a lot of people that will be walking through in life and that will not have their picture taken in years, maybe in a decade, but like, but you see them. And that is something that's very powerful. Right. I appreciate that you noticed that. I I think about how anytime that I approach people, I, I don't want anybody necessarily to feel uncomfortable. I know that I know that for like personally within it within a human standpoint, I know that it isn't necessarily my my job to or not my job, it it isn't necessarily on me to always make people feel comfortable. There's a lot of things that I feel about that, especially as a person of color. I, I, I don't have to try to make people feel comfortable all the time just, just because of my presence. Yep. At the same time, as a photographer and as someone who does work around people, work with people and also makes images of people, you know, I, 
I think that I have a responsibility to at least explain or convey that what I'm doing is not to make you look foolish and not to make a mockery of you, but in a way document document you in this space and time as you are right now. And and that's it. That That's all. This moment mm-hmm. means something to me. So I just want to make a photograph of this. You mean something right now. So I want to make a photograph of this. And you mean mm-hmm. something always, but you mean something right now that's very special that I can't explain. And I think that other people should see this because I see it and I feel that it's special. So when it comes mm-hmm. to making someone feel comfortable, I, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not here to make, make someone feel used or, or as if, they're uncared for it's Mm -hmm. more so we're helping each other out in this moment I didn't realize until I was a professional photographer and learned more about professional photographers and history that would intentionally make people feel uncomfortable in order to evoke a certain response from them I remember being told once not by a photographer but by my therapist and a couple of other people that discomfort or being uncomfortable doesn't necessarily always mean unsafe. Mm-hmm. And I remember that really registered with me because, you know, all the times that people may have felt uncomfortable with me asking if I'm going to make a photograph doesn't necessarily mean that that person's unsafe or that I'm going mm. to harm. Um, yeah. So I think about, I think about that and I think, yeah, I think for, for a, for a good amount of photographers who, who kind of suck or are looking to, you know, to drain people, in mm-hmm. a very negative way, yeah, that can be that could be predatory. But I also think that it isn't always a photographer's job to make someone feel completely comfortable, depending on what type of photography they're doing. It yeah, to make them feel completely comfortable. But for me, and for the way that I like to make my photographs, I want people to feel comfortable. And if they don't feel mm. comfortable, then I don't feel good about making the image. Nor do I feel like the image is going to work. It kind of it depends on the person. Some people are just going to be uncomfortable and going to be a little awkward. Sometimes that does make for a really good image. And then you have a conversation with them a little while after and they're like, no, yeah, that was that was an enjoyable experience or I'm glad that I did that. That makes a lot of sense to me as you're phrasing it, because I mean, a lot of times it's through discomfort that we even grow of knowing that we can be safe while still uncomfortable and we can be seen while being uncomfortable. I think that's very important. Even when you're uncomfortable, you can be appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Let's take, for instance, you have a student that has social anxiety, and then their assignment is to approach someone on the street to photograph them. Mm-hmm. What would you tell that student so that they could be able to approach someone on the street and connect with them? It's like, okay, I feel for you. I understand. Mm-hmm. I understand where you're coming from. You know, I, I have I have some things that I have to deal with too. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, I, I suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder. And my anxiety skyrockets in certain situations, not in every situation, but just certain ones. Mm-hmm. And people make photographs every day. Yeah, some people, you know, are, are attacked or berated or, you know, or treated in a disrespectful manner mm-hmm. um, on both ends. You know, photographers are looked at as as individuals who can't be trusted or perverts, you know, a lot of the time where Mm. that, that might not be true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes people that you may approach or strangers that you're around that maybe you have some intrigue in making a photograph, they, they don't seem trustworthy. You know, that these things happen. We have, we have two, we have two people and there's a dynamic here. Mm. There's dynamic here. 
So usually how I like to break it down to my students is you're anxious. Okay. Mm -hmm. Think about the other person too and how anxious they might be of just seeing you with a camera. And, you know, sometimes I get yeah. the response, well, I don't want to make anybody anxious. So why am I even carrying this thing? It's what, well, you're in this class because you were interested or you saw mm -hmm. some, some reason to take the class, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it's just to get a grade. Okay. But the thing is, is that you're in it now. And if you don't yeah. want to do this project, okay, you don't have to do it, but I'm going to tell you, it's not going to work out well for you in terms mm -hmm. of your grades. And I'm not trying to scare you with that, but you could either make the photograph or try at least try to make the photographs or you can let your anxiety best you in this situation. You learn nothing. Mm. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that is the conversation that I have when things get really tough, you know, that conversation, but yeah. the, the, the beginning conversation that I have is more so, okay, you're anxious about this. I want you to breathe. I want you to take a second and understand that you are just making a photograph. Mm -hmm. You're not hurting anybody. As long as you're asking them permission to make the photograph, all mm -hmm. you can do is do your part which is ask questions, yeah. make sure that you are explaining yourself completely, communicate what you intend to do, and then make the picture. So treat it as if you are talking to someone that you would like to get to know. And mm -hmm. inherently that's easier because when there's someone that you want to get to know, there's an incentive behind that. But mm -hmm. with a stranger, yeah, of course, maybe you don't want to be friends with a stranger. You don't, you don't want to be you know, chummy with them. But in this situation, see where it gets you in terms of making some brand new artwork. And that's what you're here for anyway. So yep. all you can do is take the step and try. Yes. Okay. And yes. I think that this can apply to so many different aspects of life. Yes. Where I think a lot of times the hangups is like, well, how is this person going to respond to me? Or what's the outcome going to be? And really, it doesn't matter. Like, all we can do is our part. Yes. I, I like that you said that too. I've had a lot of problems with that phrase specifically, the, it doesn't matter, but mm -hmm. the truth is, yeah, no, it, it, it doesn't matter. And mm -hmm. I'm not talking about nothing matters. I'm talking about right. all you can do is your part. You did what you could. And if you did it to the best of your ability, like you actually did it to the best of your ability, or you tried the hardest that you could, you actually tried, not mm -hmm. any bullshit, like you actually tried, then guess what? You did all that you could. And all you have to do is see if the other person will meet you at that level. Yes. It's you can't control what that other person is going to do and how they're going to react. You shouldn't try to do yes. anything. So do what you can. And if it doesn't turn out the way that you that you intended, well, then that's okay. You have to move on and there's a lesson learned. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most effective forms of therapy for people with social anxiety, with OCD, with PTSD is exposure therapy. And yes. What exposure therapy is, just do your part. I I firmly believe in that. I firmly believe in it to the extent that anytime that I follow that in two ways. Anytime that I am scared like truly scared to do something different or something new that I know is, is not going to bring harm to anybody else. I usually decide, okay, well, let's dip my feet into this and let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. Or there's a situation where it's like my, my intrusive thoughts try to get the best of me. The anxiety and the intrusive thoughts get, I try to get the best of me and they tell mm -hmm. me all the things that I don't want to hear and all the things that, that I don't believe in or all the things that I don't want to do, but they try to make me feel like that's what mm. I want, you know, all the voices that are clamoring. And mm -hmm. I decide, okay, if you're going to tell me all of this, I have mm -hmm. to accept that you're telling me all this and I'm going to go my own way. 
Yep. And it's it's literally that simple for me now. I mean, it's it's not necessarily simple. It's still hard, but it's simpler. And just having that conversation with myself of going, okay, that's how mm. you're going to be. Then I'm going to do this thing. I'll do this instead. Yep. And I know that this is a good route to take. Yeah. And I, I think that when it comes to making photographs of people or just making photographs in, in general, if you're making artwork and you're scared to make art, I, I think that's a good approach. You just have to try it, see what becomes of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I worry. I worry sometimes because some of the students that I've had conversations with, it was, it was a constant. I know that they have their own things that they have to deal with, their own problems that they have to solve. There's something going on in their personal lives or at home that maybe they have to deal with on a daily basis. And that wears at you. I know all of that. And that sucks. Mm-hmm. And I, I can empathize with it. I, I sympathize. Mm-hmm. Well. But at the same time, there, there has to come a point where you decide, I'm not going to let all that get in my way completely. What I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that. You know, and it's making me think to what you were sharing about in photographing someone you don't really know if a person is going to be at ease. You don't know if a person is going to be uncomfortable, but you're there, you're present, you're capturing what you see there. And there can be beauty. There can, you know, there's art made out of the discomfort and the comfort as well. And, and it can be a good experience for both people involved, even if there is discomfort there And, you know, and so I guess that makes me think about just, you know, again, about life that, you know, sometimes it is just about having that encounter rather than what's going to be the condition of it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. (laughs) I agree. I, that what you just said makes me think of, makes me think of a a shoot, I guess you would call it a shoot. I don't, I don't necessarily like to call them photo shoots whenever I meet people and I make photographs mm-hmm. of them just because it's not like it's this heavily coordinated thing. It's like, oh, we're going to have a shoot this day. For this person, this was, this was a shoot. I met them at, at the grocery store and they were um, scanning my items. And I thought that the way that their face rested, mm-hmm. the, way, the way that their eyes sat and how they looked at people as well as the aesthetic that they had, the personal aesthetic that they had of just being covered in tattoos, grayscale tattoos and blackout tattoos, as well as tattoos from the hands all the way up to their throat, having large gauges. There was something about them that was inherently beautiful because of all of this put together, the eyes, mm-hmm. the, the facial expression, the tattoos and and their stature, all of it just made something very telling. And, and mm-hmm. I, I want to be careful about that too, because I don't want to make it seem like I had an assumption of like who this person is or how they felt or, or like what kind of individual they were outside of this, you know, and I wanted to capture that in the photograph. It wasn't that it was more so just documenting this person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I asked if they would be okay with me making a portrait photograph. And they were very shy and very quiet, but also very direct. And they're like, well, yeah, let's do that. That makes me very anxious, but let's do it. And I was like, okay, are you sure that you want to do that? You know, and I asked, are you sure that you're mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. So let, let's let's make some photos. You set the date and the time and you let me know. And I was like, okay. So I set the date and the time. They came over to the studio. We sat outside of the studio. We made some portraits outside of the studio and right in the window light as well too. And I was like, are you're okay with this? Like completely? I, I just really don't want you to be uncomfortable. And they were like, yeah, I'm, I am anxious and I am uncomfortable, but it's nothing that you're doing. It's mm. It's something that I have to get through. And they said, you know, very deadpan, something that I have to get through. 
And I was like, okay, understood. So I made the pictures and they were like, thank you for the experience. I really do appreciate it. And I was like, do you, can I send you the photographs? They're like, I'd rather not, I'd rather not see them, but I, I am happy that I did this. And I was like, okay. Understood. Wow. And, and that was probably one of the, the best neutral experiences that I've ever had, just because, you know, with all the thoughts that I have and all the feelings that I have, the intrusive thoughts that I have coming from the OCD, I was immediately wondering, oh my God, am I doing something wrong? Is this like, I, am I hurting this person or, or is this mm. making me It's just, it's photographs of them, of them looking at me. They have their hat on, their gauges, and they're showing me their, their shirt. They're showing me their tattoos. They're showing me their hands. And these are all, these are all just pictures that I'm making, but am I, am I hurting their feelings? Am I, am I making them feel like they're, they're just, what's the word? They're being objectified as a person. I, I don't know. And the way that they delivered that deadpan remark of, no, I'm glad that I did this. Like, mm-hmm. That, that made me feel really good. Yeah. You know, it made me feel really good a couple weeks later, but it was like, you know, I did what I could. I, I'm, I met them where I could and I asked them if I could make some photographs. They said that they were fine with it. I, I, I was reassuring and I, and I tried to check in as much as I could and they were still okay with it. And it's like, okay, well, this, this worked out. This is, I, I find those images still very beautiful. And yes. even more so those images appear on my website. You know, they're, they're one of the individuals that's on my website. And it's like, this was, that was an interesting experience. And I, I'm glad that's in some way me making photographs of that person helped. I love this story so much. Whenever I've been photographed, it felt really cathartic. It felt really therapeutic because, you know, I, I mean, I, I even think about just having conversations with people, how rare it is for people to even just really look into your eyes. So to have someone really look at you, there's something, I I think that has a, a healing element to that. You know, I, I don't get to think of it like that all that much, just because I, I, I try to make, I try to make room for, for understanding the individual that I'm making photographs of and, and mm. how, how we can make this work together. But, you know, it's, I, I like that you said that because there have been some really wonderful conversations that I've had with some of the people that I've made pictures of mm-hmm. where they've stated, I felt seen mm. or no one's ever asked me if they can make my picture. And you were the first person to do that. And that felt really good. And that, that feels good, you know, to, to think that maybe someone sees that immediately when I'm making their picture, oh, this person sees me or this person is paying attention. That's that's what I strive for in the pictures that I make. So it, it feels good to, to hear things like that here and there. It's just that I, I have to start remembering that more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think it's can be easy to forget some of these things when just getting into a rhythm and routine and, and everything, but what you do is really important. Thank you. That's actually very sweet. I, I don't like to give it too much importance, but it's important to me. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like to give it like a worldly importance. It's just that it's very important to me because I feel very much connected to people when I make photographs. And honestly, I think not always, of course, but I, I think that most times I'm at my best when I'm making pictures of people or when I'm helping people and making pictures of people is the thing that I do more uh, most often. One of the favorite pictures that, I have ever had taken of me before where I'm like, yeah, like this, this represents me is you and I were hiking over at Zor Valley and 
So Zora Valley is in western New York, and it's up by Niagara. And it looks like this huge canyon, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was sitting on a log or a rock or something. You were sitting on a huge log, like a, a, a turn tree. Oh yeah, yeah. Cause I I had to climb climb up that like like I I had to jump on it, and I'm just yeah I'm I'm just there in my element of being in the woods, and I grew up in the city, but I spent like seven summers like I would go out to camps and be working and the woods just all these summers and stuff, and so I just I felt most at home in the woods and eventually moved to a rural area. And so you were able to capture what home meant for me. And it's something that I'm just really grateful for. And I like showing people that that picture because I'm like, yeah, this is this is me. This is this is my vibe. Like if you want to know who I am, this is who I am. That's awesome. <laughs> That, that makes me feel good to hear. Like that, that, I really like that picture too. Cause I remember you having this, this look of, of like conquering that tree. Um, <laughs> it was hard to get up. up. Yeah. I, I believe that. I believe I, I didn't have to climb on it, but yeah, I, I believe that you, uh, you just seemed very confident. And at the same time, you seemed like you had accomplished something very huge and you did in the pictures. Thank you. Thank you for helping me make it. Yeah, of course. I have one last question for you. Yeah. If you could give your younger self one piece of advice about liberation, what would that be? You know, that's that's difficult because I mean, I, I know that it's just it's just a, a question, like a hypothetical question, but it's difficult just because I think about how how much I've learned after the OCD bullshit, you know, how much I've learned in terms of what you can and can't deal with or what you can and can't control. I think about how, you know, there's a lot of things that I did when I was younger that I didn't understand were, were this, mm. you know, now I look back on it. It's like, wow, that, that was, that was a really tough moment. And it was only made tougher because I didn't know how to control or not control how to manage this thing that I deal with. <laughs> and if I had some advice or some wisdom to impart on myself when I was a kid, I think it would be something along the lines of if I could coach myself into managing all the things that I can manage now back then, I think that maybe I, I would have had a life that I, that I constantly daydream over. You know, mm -hmm. I think about me now being, you know, 32, I, I look back on being a heavy set kid who was, I was made fun of a, a great deal when I was in, in high school and, and before that. And I, I, I surrendered to this idea that I wasn't going to have as much opportunity because I didn't look a certain way and also because I didn't behave a certain way. And I missed out on a lot of just really good moments that I should have had for myself. Hmm. And yeah, I, I think about that now and I think yeah, it, would have, it would have been nice. It would have been nice to, to be a little bit freer when I was a kid, but I'm an adult and I'm, and I'm free now or I'm yeah. freer now and that feels good. And yeah, some time was lost, but I still have a lot of time left, I think. So, you know, that resonates with me whenever I was a kid, too, because I think I was so afraid of social failure that it held me back from getting to know people and having people get to know me. And so that fear of failure in social settings 
was really what created this this fortress around me. And I think if I would have accepted that failure is a part of life, that I would have really let those walls down with people. Hmm. I like that. I, you know, I, I know that you just said that what I said resonates with you, but what you just said resonates with me as an adult, because there are some experiences that I've had where I have had a high guard, you know, as an adult where I, I didn't necessarily need that, but mm-hmm. I, I just, I would wish that, you know, I could tell myself to, to be easy on myself, you know, take, take it easy on myself and, and not have so many expectations about how things are supposed to go. Mm, but at guess. the same time, I have to admit now, honestly, that I, that I'm really good at accepting failure and my own mm-hmm. failure. So maybe I, I had to go through that. I don't know if I would necessarily give myself any advice then. I wouldn't go back in time and give myself any advice other than it would be just so you know, you're loved and you're cared for. enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would be interested in being a guest on this podcast, reach out to me in my Instagram, which is The Liberated Porch.